Welcome to this podcast discussing some of the key trials in prostate cancer presented at ASCO GU 2023. We'll be hearing about some of the biggest data presented at the meeting, including Triton 3, Checkmate 650 and Formula 509. We'll also be hearing from leading experts in prostate cancer on some of the hot topics in the field, such as treatment sequencing and combination therapies, unanswered questions for the use of PSMA PET in staging of disease, and the use of active surveillance in localised prostate cancer. Let's start off by hearing from Dr. Alan Bryce of Mayo Clinic on the Triton 3 interim overall survival results. Triton 3 was, is a registrational trial uh, looking at rucaparib for patients with metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer who harbor aberrations in either BRCA1, 2, or ATM. It's a randomized control trial, 400 patients, uh, randomized between rucaparib or standard of care therapy with the physician's choice of docetaxel, abiraterone, or enzalutamide. It was powered to look at radiographic progression-free survival as the primary endpoint, uh, looking first in the subgroup of BRCA aberrant disease and secondly in the subgroup of ATM aberrant disease. So we presented here today the primary endpoint of RPFS, uh, as well as some of the subset analyses and secondary analyses uh, looking at response by uh, treatment arm and response by uh, uh, genetic aberration uh, and the interim overall survival. So the top line data is very good. Uh, importantly, this was a positive study, clearly demonstrating the superiority of rucaparib over physician's choice of therapy for patients with MCRPC and the BRCA aberration who have progressed on at least one androgen pathway inhibitor and who have not seen docetaxel in the castration resistant setting. As it was, patients who received docetaxel in the hormone sensitive setting were permitted so that comprised approximately 20% of the patient population. Very strong results showing a 50% risk of progression or death for patients randomized to rucaparib over the physician's choice of therapy. So, you know, really exciting to present these results here today. Clearly a practice-changing uh, trial. Still a question for regulators to review in terms of drug approval, so not anything that would uh, be implemented in practice today. But nevertheless, you know, the clearest result, the largest PARP inhibitor study in this space, the first time we have seen a PARP inhibitor beat a docetaxel-containing control arm. Docetaxel has been the standard of care in prostate cancer for nearly 30 years now. And this is actually the first clinical trial we've ever had where a experimental therapy or the experimental arm has beat a docetaxel-containing control arm. So, um, really very happy to have presented this study here today. Uh, clearly a practice-changing result. And you know, the question will be where this fits in to the paradigm uh, moving forward as, as the PARP inhibitor space continues to evolve and we've seen multiple other studies addressing this question, but Recaprib is, is clearly an option in this space for these patients and, and should be part of the, uh, the conversation moving forward for treatment consideration. Dr. Russell Pashisnik of Washington University School of Medicine explains the latest results from Checkmate 650. So the Checkmate 650 trial was looking at ipilimumab and nivolumab in patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Um, what we presented here today was actually a follow-up study from an initial portion that was done a couple years ago. In this particular portion, uh, patients were randomized to one of four different cohorts. 
they could get either two different doses of ipinevo or ipi monotherapy or cabazitaxel. It's a randomized controlled trial. Um, and then uh, patients were continued on that. If patients were randomized to ipilimumab monotherapy arm or cabazitaxel arm, they could cross over to ipinevo at progression. Dr. Paul Nguyen of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Harvard Medical School took us through the Formula 509 trial and explained the latest results from the study. The Formula 509 trial was a randomized, multi-centered trial looking at patients with a rising PSA after radical prostatectomy. These patients usually get salvage radiation with six months of androgen deprivation therapy. And what we were trying to find out in the Formula 509 trial is whether adding six months of apalutamide and abiraterone could improve outcomes compared to the standard of six months of bicalutamide added to standard six months of ADT. So again, this was a randomized trial, and we looked for patients who had slightly higher risk. So they had to have at least some kind of unfavorable uh, risk factor, like a high decipher score, a Gleason 8 to 10, a um, pathologic stage T3, T4. We even allowed node positive patients in. It turns out in the trial, about 29% of the patients were node positive. Um, and when we designed the trial, we stratified by PSA level and node positivity. So in the trial, the median PSA was 0.3, and about a third of the patients had a PSA greater than 0.5, which was one of the stratification factors. And again, 29% of the patients were node positive, which was another stratification factor. When we designed the statistics, uh, we used one-sided p-values for the overall trial. However, for the pre-planned, pre-stratified subgroup analyses, we used two-sided statistics, which I'll get into when we talk about the results. When we presented the results this year at ASCO-GU, we found on the primary analysis that we didn't quite meet statistical significance for progression-free survival. The hazard ratio was 0.71 and the p-value was 0.06. Same thing with metastasis-free survival. For the overall trial, we did not quite meet it. The hazard ratio there was 0.57 and the p-value was 0.05. However, where it got really interesting was in the pre-planned, pre-stratified subgroup analysis. So this is for patients with a PSA greater than 0.5. We saw a very significant benefit to abiraterone and apalutamide. So specifically for progression-free survival, we saw that the hazard ratio was 0.5 with a p-value of 0.03. And more importantly, for metastasis-free survival, which is a surrogate for overall survival, we found a huge hazard ratio of 0.32. The p-value, which was two-sided, was 0.02. And the absolute benefit at three years was an 18% difference in metastasis-free survival. So that meant that the number needed to treat to prevent one metastasis at just three years was barely above five. So in terms of what this means, I think that the Formula 509 regimen, which is basically six months of intensified ADT with abiraterone and apalutamide, provides a very attractive option for patients who need some kind of intensified therapy beyond the usual six months of ADT. And to put this into context, we can think about the Radicals HD trial, which was a hugely important, huge phase three trial that came out of England and found that when you compared 24 months of hormones versus six months of hormones, which was our control arm also in Formula 509, that there was an improvement in metastasis-free survival. 
But when you kind of compare the hazard ratios, meaning compare the benefits seen in the Formula 509 trial of intensifying six months of antitribrivation versus the hazard ratio in the Radicals HD trial, where you lengthen the ADT to 24 months, our hazard ratios actually came out favorably. So for the overall trial, um, the hazard ratio for the Radicals HD 24 months of ADT was 0.77. And our overall hazard ratio for MFS was 0.57. And when you looked at the patients with a PSA greater than 0.5, the radicals HD hazard ratio was 0.67 and ours was 0.32. Now, of course, you cannot compare trials directly, but just to give people a sense of the magnitude of the benefits, certainly the magnitude of our benefits seems uh, you know, at least similar to and numerically greater than what was seen in the radicals HD trial. So um, you know, in the future, this is going to be need to this is going to be studied further, and I'll talk about that in a second. But what I think it means for now is that for patients who need some kind of intensification beyond six months of ADT in the salvage setting with the rising PSA getting salvage radiation, I think that six months plus abiraterone and apalutamide is a very attractive alternative to needing to lengthen the duration all the way to 24 months, which carries now two years worth of side effects. Professor Silky Gillison of the Oncological Institute of Southern Switzerland discussed important considerations for treatment sequencing and combination therapies when treating patients with prostate cancer. So I had the talk here and I, I think, you know, when I was thinking about how to build up the talk, I realized that really the, the situation has changed, right? A lot of the trials that we base our decisions on have been really done in an area where we gave ADT alone in the metastatic hormone sensitive setting. And now we have kind of four scenarios. So we have still these patients who have received ADT alone in the hormone sensitive setting, but they become less and less, at least I hope so, because we know now that the combinations are so much better. And and um, then we have the second scenario where we have given ADT plus docetaxel in the metastatic hormone sensitive space. The third setting where we have given ADT and a novel endocrine agent. And then like more recently, we have also the triplets where we give ADT chemotherapy, so docetaxel, plus one of the novel endocrine agents. And then when the patients progressed, obviously they have already had two of our like very powerful drugs. So it has changed everything a, a bit. And so we have kind of four scenarios and we have to think in these four scenarios. And at least in my practice, the, the scenario with giving ADT plus a novel endocrine agent is probably the most frequent one now. So I guess that is one of the, the key messages that we have to base our treatment decisions on what the patient has received in the metastatic hormone sensitive stage. And then I guess another important message is that, at least I think for fit patients, we have to try to offer all the options. Um, so, and maybe it's not that important what sequence always, but that we are in time to still give the treatment options. I guess that is one important point. And one thing that is very close to my heart is that we don't forget the bone targeted agents um, because that's something that is really important for our patients because we have seen in multiple trials that actually fractures are a problem. And these fractures are 
not only at the site of metastasis, but also osteoporotic fractures. So we should really think um, about also giving these bone-targeted agents in addition to our therapies. And then I guess we speak about that afterwards. Um, I, I guess the BARP inhibitors have been a bit controversial and I think we need to find the best setting for the BARP inhibitors. We also caught up with Professor David Nanus of Whale Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital as he discussed unanswered questions for the use of PSMA PET in the staging of prostate cancer. So while it's clear that PSMA PET scan has great utility in newly diagnosed high-risk patients, I think most people would agree on that and it's widely used today across the world if, if it's available. There are some other areas where its utility is really not proven. So that if you think about prostate cancer, one area that comes up not infrequently is the patient who's already castrate resistant uh, and has no evidence of metastatic cancer, so or M0 CRPC, and that's generally on conventional imaging where you say they have no evidence of metastatic cancer uh, despite a rising PSA. In that setting, PSMA PET scan is generally used uh, which is similar to the patients with, with castrate-sensitive disease who, with a biochemical relapse, relapse post-definitive therapy, most would recommend, in fact, all guidelines recommend PSMA PET-CT. So that, those early areas, I think it's pretty universally used. Where, where it's a little bit um, confusing and really where there's not a whole lot of evidence is patients that are metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So you have a patient who's on hormonal therapy or ADT, maybe with an androgen receptor selective inhibitor and their PSA is going up. Is there any utility in that setting to do PSMA PET? Um, frequently they'll have conventional imaging and it doesn't show any evidence of progression, but if you do PSMA PET CT, maybe it will show progression. And then it's confusing, well, should I change therapy because of the PSMA PET CT shows progression, but all the studies were done without PSMA PET-CT. I think what a lot of uh, investigators and clinicians are looking for is, is evidence for what's called oligoprogression, meaning that one side of disease is getting worse. And so if you have a patient on therapy, we know with a lot of therapies, uh, and many diseases where if you have an escape lesion or one lesion is getting worse on, let's say, immunotherapy or systemic therapy like hormonal therapy, and you treat that one lesion, maybe you can put the patient back into a remission. So, with the, and so there, that has not been proven, but there are some prospective trials treating oligometastatic prostate cancer to see if that actually translates to improvement in survival. The other area, which is even more confusing, is response to therapy. So, People think of a PET scan, right? Let's say in lymphoma, you have a FTG PET or in lung cancer and patients get treated and they respond and you can use the PET CT to gauge response and it's widely accepted. So many uh, clinicians will use PSMA PET scan in that setting and to see is the patient responding, uh, even though they have widely metastatic disease, instead of getting conventional imaging, they'll use PSMA PET CT. And all those areas are really not, you know, the, the utility or the benefit or what improvement you'll have in that setting is really not been well defined. Um, and up until now, the FDA does not look at PSMA PET CT as a surrogate for conventional imaging to see progression or, or response. So I think 
there'll be more studies in that area. There are a lot of reports, I mean, many, many reports, mostly single institution. So as that data gets aggregated, I think we'll be able to define in what scenario is a PSMA PET-CT useful in patients with castrate-resistant, you know, widely metastatic prostate cancer. Finally, we heard from Professor Anthony DeMacco of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute on the use of active surveillance in localized prostate cancer. So the main points that we're going to discuss today is with respect to the disease state of favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer. And the bottom line is going to be one size does not fit all. So active surveillance certainly is appropriate for some, but not for others. We'll go through some benchmarks, which will first stratify men by comorbidity, because clearly with a disease like favorable intermediate risk, the natural history can be a decade to two. So people who are not in good health would certainly be excellent candidates for active surveillance, and I think everybody would agree with that. They probably are people who should not be biopsied to begin with, or maybe even get a PSA. However, there are definitely people in whom treatment for favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer is reasonable. Those with minimal comorbidity and those who have factors that we'll discuss today in detail, and I'll mention a few now, um, that predict for more aggressive cancer than what the workup to date may have shown. Specifically, a very interesting and very simple test is PSA density. PSA density is the PSA level unconfounded, and that's important to make sure that it's not confounded by bike riding, ejaculation, recent instrumentation, infection, inflammation, divided by uh, the ultrasound or MRI defined volume. MRI is probably better because it's more accurate. A very low PSA density is reassuring that the risk of having higher grade disease, 4 plus 3, or unfavorable pathology if you went to radical prostatectomy, like extracapsular extension, seminal vesicle invasion, positive lymph nodes would be very low. The only exception is in a man with low testosterone who's hypogonadal, who cannot mount a PSA response, the PSA density is unreliable. In such men, decipher or some other genomic classifier would be reasonable because there's also data that will show that supports a very, very high rate of showing that disease is not clinically significant if the decipher is very low. There are a number of other factors that we'll go through, such as whether the disease is visible on MRI and whether the targeted biopsy actually disclose that, the percent grade four, a person's BMI, their age, the PSA velocity in past years. We'll also talk about whether the disease is palpable or not. And these factors I'll talk about today don't only apply to Gleason 3 plus 4, but actually also apply to Gleason 6, which people often talk about as not needing treatment at all. But in fact, I'll give an example would be a man who has a PSA of 9 and a, a normal-sized gland of 30 has a PSA density of 0.3. And suppose that they had a family history of prostate cancer and they carry a mutation like BRCA2. And to boot, if they were African-American, I'm just giving you things to pile on that could actually you know, say, this is not somebody we want to observe, especially if they're young. Um, I think the other thing, too, as I'll discuss, is the future research in this area, which gets into, as we heard this morning, machine-based learning and its ability to predict adverse pathology at prostatectomy in men with otherwise favorable indices. 
multimodal modeling, which has been done by multiple people, basically taking several factors and putting them into a model, similar to machine-based learning, just using a different methodology. Also, we'll talk about whether or not active surveillance protocols, in terms of intensity, what do you do, how often do you follow, can be modified uh, based on the research I just mentioned. So if someone's at very low risk of having adverse pathology, do you really need to biopsy them every year and get an MRI? Whereas if they're at high risk for adverse pathology, should you be reevaluating them in three months or six months? Finally, we'll talk about um, modifiable risk factors, diet, exercise, and their potential impact on delaying people from going from you know, surveillance to treatment. So those are the main points that we'll discuss today. That's all for this episode. Take a look at vjoncology.com for more interviews from ASCO GU, including updates in bladder and kidney cancer. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify and Apple. You can also follow us on Twitter for live updates from oncology meetings throughout the year. Stay tuned for more updates and discussions with VJ Oncology.